Hello, and welcome to another edition of Modern Law Library. My guest today is Amos Giora, the author of a startling and provocative new book published by Anchorwick titled The Crime of Complicity, The Bystander in the Holocaust. In it, Mr. Giora poses the question, if you are a bystander and witness a crime, should intervention to prevent that crime be a legal obligation? Or is moral responsibility enough? He asks these questions within the context of his own family's experiences in the Netherlands and Hungary during the Holocaust. Amos is a professor of law at the S.J. Quinney College of Law at the University of Utah and a retired lieutenant colonel in the Israeli Defense Forces. He is actively involved in the effort to legislate Holocaust genocide education in Utah public schools and is the author of several previous books, including Freedom from Religion, Rights and National Security, and Tolerating Intolerance, The Price of Protecting Extremism. Welcome, Amos. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So I want to start right away by looking at the title itself, The Crime of Complicity. It's about as strong a title as as there's ever been, I think. So to kick things off here, can you define for our listeners today the word complicity particularly within the context of this very powerful narrative you tell in the book of your family's experiences in the Holocaust. And then, you know, you do go into also sort of discussing it within the context of the world we live in today. And then let's look at the subtitle as well, The Bystander in the Holocaust. How would you define bystander? So I guess two-point question, how would you define complicity and how would you define bystander? For me, someone who is complicit is an individual who was present at an event, had the opportunity to prevent harm from befalling unto another individual, and by failing to intervene, he or she is complicit in the crime of the perpetrator and in the um, harm that befell the individual. The bystander is the person, that very person who's standing watching, observing, seeing somebody do something to another person, has the capability, ability to act on behalf of the vulnerable individual, and makes a conscious, rational decision not to intervene. And it's important to, from my perspective in the context of complicity, that the decision not to intervene, not to act, is a conscious decision. Somebody made a decision not to do something to help another person, for me, that person is complicit of a crime, mm-hmm. the crime of complicity. Mm-hmm. And in the context of the subtitle, The Bystander in the Holocaust, I'm firmly convinced after having spent four years researching this book, and researching in Europe and elsewhere, that without the bystander, it would have been impossible for the Nazis and their collaborators to commit the crime of the Holocaust. And the role of the bystander is facilitating, enabling that, for me, is the crime of complicity. So the book looks at the role of the bystander in the Holocaust through the lens of three specific events, the death marches, the German occupation of Holland, and the German occupation of Hungary. Amos, can you just tell us a little bit about each of these events and sort of what your family's involvement was in each of them? When the Nazis came to uh, Hungary in March of 1944, my father was 19 and my mother was 12. My father was a student in the Jewish Theological Seminary, which the Nazis turned into their headquarters, irony of ironies. 
In June of 44, he's ordered to report to be transported to Bor. Bor was a, a mining camp in Serbia. It was never clear to me exactly how he got there. I don't know if it was by bus or by train, uh, but not by walking. In Bor, he spent five months working in, in very difficult conditions. In November of 44, when the Russians were getting closer and closer to Bor itself, the camp commander gave an order to close the camp. Between six to 10,000 Jews who were in the camp were divided into two groups. The first group was sent back to Hungary. The overwhelming majority of them were massacred. The second group, which my father was in, were liberated by Tito's, Marshal Tito's partisans. From there, my father led four or five other individuals. They walked 136 kilometers from Bor in the Carpathian Mountains to Sofia, the capital of Bulgaria. In the context of the bystander, my father would talk about the villagers who saw him and the others. It's important to remember there was there were no maps, no compasses, no food, no water, um, bare clothing, shoes they had. And in my father's recounting of it, what was in, in the context of the book and your previous question, John, that the villager who's clearly the bystander and clearly sees Jews in terrible distress, the only thing that my father emphasized in discussing this was the, the taunting motion that the, the villagers would would extend a hand with a cup of water, and then when people like my father would you know reach for it, they would pull the arm back. For me, the villagers, the bystanders, important to the story. My mother, as I say, was 12 years old in Budapest with her mom. My maternal grandfather was in a war camp in the Ukraine, and my mother and grandmother were in hiding in Budapest. They were twice taken to be shot by the Arrow Cross, the, the Hungarian Nazi collaborators. Both times, fortunately, they were saved. They obviously were not shot. But what, in the context of the bystander, what's important is that my mother very clearly recalls that people saw my mother and grandmother running from a safe house to safe house. Nobody offered assistance in the same way that no villagers in Serbia offered my father uh, assistance as he was making his way in the mountains from Serbia to Bulgaria. For me, both instances, the Hungarian story and the death march story, have become for me the essence of the bystander and the essence of the, com of the crime of complicity. And then with respect to the Netherlands, I was extremely fortunate that the Jewish community in Maastricht in Holland opened its doors to me, and I was able to interview Holocaust survivors, children of Holocaust survivors, and Gentiles who observed the deportation of, of the Jews in Maastricht. And I had some extraordinary conversations, extremely painful, with people who today are in their 80s but were children at the time, in which they confronted, and I put this in the book the, for the first time ever, whether or not their parents were bystanders. And one of the things that, in terms of the book, over the course of the past four years, I've had the opportunity of interviewing many, many people who opened their doors to me, remarkable conversations, and I try to be an honest reporter and incorporate those stories and their stories in the book to bring the question of the bystander to life for the reader to be able to truly grapple with the question.
That's fascinating. And one of the really interesting things uh, about this book and sort of one of the through lines through this is your own personal journey. The reader is there with you as you you go to Hungary, as you go to the Netherlands, as you as you revisit these places in these cities that have such meaningful and traumatic uh, importance in your family. And you know, I have a question, well, it's twofold. One, how did you come to write this book? I mean, was there a specific incident that provided sort of the impetus for you to dig more deeply into your family's history? Just talk a little bit about that. Because it's, it's, it's such an integral part of the story, your own personal journey, I guess, as it is. I think there's a threefold answer. One, mm-hmm. the book opens with this. When I was five years old, I was swimming with my cousin, Danny, who, who drowned. And I was the last person to swim with him. And so I, for, I'm 60 in two months, I, for 55 years, have been grappling with the question of what is our duty one to the other and the question of the bystander. And, you know, people tell me, you're only five, and I will say, that's correct. I was only five, but the unimaginable tragedy of that day, tragically, a life-forming event, and I very specifically decided to open the book with the story of, of my cousin's drowning, and the first picture in the book is a picture of Donnie and I the day before he died. Um, so that's one impetus for the book. The second impetus for the book, my father, who died in October of uh, 2015, Four years before he died, became ill, and I realized that I knew almost nothing about his Holocaust story, and I decided that the time has come to confront this, and the book really became a way to explore and to engage in my parents' Holocaust experiences, and that's exactly why, as I, you know, the previous four summers I've, I've gone to Europe and I've interviewed people and, and seen the places where these things occurred to them. So the second leg is to try to understand really my parents' Holocaust experiences. And the third is because I have become obsessed, perhaps because of the first two, with the question of the bystander and the role and the responsibility we each have one to the other. And I think if you take my the tragedy of my cousin's drowning and my parents' Holocaust experiences, and then the question is, what do you do with that? And from my perspective, I felt the, the best thing I can do is through telling the stories, which are obviously, uh, these are grim stories. This is not an, a happy read, but enabled me to present to the reader, I hope in a, in a compelling and thoughtful manner, the question of the bystander and indeed our obligation and responsibility one to the other. Mm-hmm. So the book makes a, a pretty powerful argument for criminalizing bystanders uh, to a crime who either don't intervene or don't report the crime to the authorities. Just asking here, do we, do you really believe we need to impose legal obligations on a bystander in order for them to act? I do. And what it has made this crystal clear for me in, while researching the book, fast forward to contemporary society, mm-hmm. is significant increase in the number of reported sexual assaults on college campuses and the opportunity that bystanders had to protect the rape victim either before the rape or during the rape. And I spent a significant amount of time researching uh, rape that occurred at Vanderbilt University. And for me, the decision of the bystander not to intervene 
while she was being raped by his roommate and others highlighted for me the absolute requirement to make this non-intervention, the complicity, a crime. And the roommate's it's a decision, and he's very open about the decision not to intervene. For me, led me to the clear conclusion that the failure to prosecute somebody like that simply means that the bystander goes unpunished based on my on how I view the Holocaust and how I view contemporary society. The, the thought of non-prosecution doesn't work for me. So just sort of playing devil's advocate here, Amos. So what if the bystander is confronted with a situation where by intervening, becoming involved, it puts him or herself at harm's way? What would you suggest? I mean, I know it, it really would vary depending on the the crime or the, the event that's being witnessed, but, you know, what, what would a bystander do if their own life could be threatened by becoming involved? I think so. First of all, John, that's exactly the question, and I think that's one of the, um, I don't know if it's a weakness in the book, but it's certainly where I, I am I'm vulnerable to criticism, and I well accept that. And my response is the following. I asked myself, what do I expect of the bystander to do? And I think I came up with a solution that answers your question, and in this day and age when everybody has, an, has a, a smartphone, iPhone, I mean, children are literally born with this thing in their hand. All I want the bystander to do is to, you know, punch in 911 or 100 or whatever the, the relevant number for first responders to report, and that's, that's the extent of involvement that I demand in terms of the, of the law of the bystander. I don't, in terms of the book and what I recommend and propose, I don't expect that the bystander physically intervene. Sometimes physical intervention can actually lead not only to the bystander's harm, but can also harm others. All I yeah. want the bystander to do is to call for assistance. That's it. And I think that's a, a minimal expectation, a minimal demand that I don't think is going to endanger the bystander. And I think that would meet my requirement and also in a way that safeguards the bystander. Absolutely. I mean, you, you mentioned the uh, campus rape cases just a few minutes ago. And and there are other examples that you do give in the book of more, um, you know, also contemporary cases where uh, a crime was being committed and there were bystanders and they did not intervene. So the, another question then is, so who reports on the bystander? I mean, don't we, by criminalizing sort of non-intervention on the part of the bystander, do we run the risk of becoming, um, you know, a, I guess what you'd call a reporting society? Is there a danger there? There is a danger, and I understand the question. I think it's a great question. Do we become a reporting society? Mm -hmm. For me, what the important role for me of the bystander is to protect the victim. Bystanders who report on bystanders, you know, if you think about it in a concentric circle context, all I want is for the bystander who sees the harm being committed to report. The bystander who reports on the bystander, that would become, from, for me, self-defeating. I understand the, the criticism that you're raising, but from the prosecutor's perspective, the person who would be prosecutable is the bystander who was right there, had the opportunity to help, and chose not to. It's that person and that person only in the context of my proposal that has failed the duty that I propose creating. And in those other examples that you, you do cite uh, in the book, it's very clear that, you know, all it would take would be a phone call or, you know, something like that for somebody to, you know, call the authorities, bring somebody in where possibly 
what ended up happening is prevented in some way. So I, you know, I, I totally get your point where it's as, as easy as a phone call or something that you know does not directly involve the bystander in in what he or she is witnessing. I want to just go a little bit more into this question about the bystander itself. I mean, what comprises a bystander? I mean, how far does one project bystander status? Uh, you know, looking sort of at very immediate world events circumstances. You know, for years there have been atrocities committed in Syria, for example. But you know nothing was was done after six years of civil war. It feels as though it took, and I'm I'm really kind of simplifying this here, but it took an Oscar-winning documentary called The White Helmets to really break through the indifference that many in the world seem to have to the tragedy of, for example, Aleppo. Is there a, a physical proximity to a specific crime that defines who and and who isn't a bystander? That's an excellent question. For me, the the culpable bystander is the individual physically there. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I can watch whatever TV station tonight or news outlet and see a crime against humanity being committed in Syria. My proposal, neither you nor I are complicit in what the Syrian regime is doing to the Syrian people. On the other hand, if you are walking home tonight from your workplace to where you live and walking down the street and you see harm befalling another individual and you choose not to you know, dial and call the first responder, that's where, according to my proposal, that's where you're culpable. But if when you get home and you turn on your TV and you watch, you know, whatever you're watching in terms of somewhere else in the world, for that you bear no responsibility. So switching gears a little bit here, you are very involved in raising Holocaust awareness in classrooms, particularly in uh, Utah, where you live part-time and teach, because you, you divide your time between Utah and uh, Israel, correct? Indeed, I commute. <laughs> Long commute. Um, so how can we use, or how can listeners or readers of your book use the Holocaust to draw lessons for contemporary society? I think we can draw on the Holocaust on a number of different levels. One, what is our responsibility one to the other? That's one. Two, our absolute responsibility to articulate when government is committing profound wrongs, to not be passive in the face of violations of civil rights and violations of civil liberties. Three, to, if possible, to provide solace to the vulnerable. Four, to be very cognizant of potential threats not to turn the proverbial blind eye. Also to be very civic engaged. One of the questions I've been re- repeatedly asked as the book has, you know, now that it's out, is, is the book relevant to, you know, for instance, contemporary political discussion in the United States? And my answer to that is that if the book serves for me one important purpose It's to ensure, this is directly drawing on the Holocaust, to directly ensure that each and every one of us is aware of our surroundings, physical and political, and that we do not have the luxury of passivity. For me, one of the great lessons of the Holocaust, and obviously a tragic lesson, is how many people chose to ignore the rise of Hitler, the first few years of Hitler, 
Um, they thought things would be better, and they, you know, it's a willful disregarding or a hopeful disregarding of what ultimately turned out to be the Holocaust. And that idea of recognizing danger, of standing up to danger, to articulating the potential negative impacts of those dangers of any paradigm that limits individual rights, taking the Holocaust, applying it to today, for me, a simple example is, you know, people who chose on November 8th of last year not to vote. The idea of not being involved in civic discussion, clear line from the Holocaust today, that's just, to me, unacceptable. And if, if this book serves, as, if you will, as a clarion call to engaged involvement, to standing up, to not being passive, to not being complicity, then from my perspective, um, the book will have served its purpose. So... Along the lines of what you've just said, and um, looking at yourself as a human being, as, as, as an author, as someone who went through this very profound journey while researching and, and, and writing this book, is there anything in the book that challenged your beliefs about bystanders and what they could or, or should have done, whether within the context of the Holocaust or in some of um, these contemporary examples that you've cited? So in the conversations that I had with with people who who I met with, there's a delicate balance, and you know I went back and forth on this about being judgmental of the actions or non-actions of others 75 years ago. One needs to be, on the one hand, very careful not to be judgmental, but on the other hand, I think we can draw lessons from history. I'm a firm believer in drawing lessons from history and applying them today. So I don't know how. I would have acted, you know, if I were a villager watching my father, you know, escaping. I would like to believe I would have offered him water. Would I have? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But because I'm well aware of the consequences of the bystander's decision not to intervene and how that facilitates the acts of the perpetrator, the clear lesson I learned from that in terms of society today is to say that Indeed, the state has the responsibility, how I understand the criminal law, to prosecute the bystander who made that conscious decision not to provide assistance to the vulnerable, particularly when the help I propose is so minimal. Just use your cell phone. And just using your cell phone, I think, whether it's the rape at Vanderbilt or it's the other terrible case in Las Vegas when these two 19-year-olds, Cash and Strohmeyer, who rapes and murders Sharice Iverson. Cash watches it for a second, doesn't say anything, never intervenes while knowing that his friend is raping and murdering a seven-year-old child. That, for me, is so beyond heinous that in the context of the bystanders, somebody like Cash, much like um, Prelo, who's the roommate at Vanderbilt, those are individuals who, from my perspective, need to be prosecuted, need to be convicted, and need to be in jail because they facilitated the actions of the perpetrator. That, for me, is a clear lesson from the Holocaust. Well, thank you, Amos, for taking the time today to talk about your book and talk about this very, very topical, very, very relevant issue. To listeners out there, The Crime of Complicity, The Bystander in the Holocaust, is now available for purchase from shopaba.org, as well as Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Thank you again so much, Amos. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you.
And thank you, listeners, for joining us today. Stay tuned next month for another fascinating edition of Modern Law Library. Take care.